Hey, Dan. What up, guy? You're into this fintech. What's all this I'm hearing about Current? You're going to like this guy. Current is a fintech company that's completely disrupting traditional banking. Wait a second. Does that mean I don't have to drive to the bank anymore? <laughs> yeah, exactly. I manage an important part of my family's finances from one easy-to-use app. Well, I got to get this app, but where can I learn more? It's super easy. Just go to Current.com slash OK, O-K-A-Y, and download the app. That's Current.com slash OK. Current is a financial technology company, not a bank. Banking services provided by Choice Financial Group, member FDIC, and Cross River Bank, member FDIC. Hey, it's Dan here. Welcome to OK Computer. I have a great episode for you today. A few weeks ago in Boulder, Colorado, I sat down with my very good friend, Katie Stanton, the general partner of Moxie Ventures and Keshav Karupa Dinakaran, the CEO and founder of Lumini, a company that Katie invested in very early. We discussed the shift from manual to digital labor, transforming healthcare and financial services industries and living in a hacker house. But first, we talked to Keshav about breaking the Guinness Book world record for the number of Rubik's Cubes solved in an hour. So take a listen. I hope you enjoy it. I certainly did. I'm not going to do that thing on the Rubik's Cube, but it is fascinating. And I think it needs to be talked about. For My sure. partner, Guy, I said, Katie just is, we're sitting down with what I, one of the most interesting guys that when we do a little research ahead of a podcast, and I was like, okay, Guy, he holds the Guinness Book world record. for. I said, how many do you think that he has done in an hour? And it's a seven-year record that has not been broken. You know what he said? 218. I was like, how the fuck did you come up with that number? He yeah, was just mad. And then he goes, I was like, all right, well, it's 290, but he beat the prior record of 220. So he was That's pretty really spot close, on. Yeah. Okay. That's fast math. But I saw your tweet that was in the BI story. Mm -hmm. So this was three years ago, right? Mm -hmm. Your reaction to seeing somebody do that is just crazy. It's like magic. What is the common response that people like say to you? What do you think it is? And we should, I, we're not recording, but. The, but we should but, be recording. I know. I, well, let's see. Yeah. Let's see. Yeah. yeah I was like, yeah, yeah, we're recording. Yeah. So okay. what do you, what, what, Katie and I went to a magic show in June. Yeah. And we were, and, and we can tell you That's stories about. Our that. eyes were popping. Okay. But it was, was it a so magic crazy. show or he's an illusion? A mentalist. A mentalist. Yeah. He said okay, he's a mentalist. Okay. But you and I, and we sat there for two hours. And not only did we watch people in this audience who were like, what the hell is going on? He did it to us personally. Yeah. And we're not, we'll save that for another pot. Okay. We'll get Oz on the pot. Would <gasps> oh that, would my that be amazing? God. Okay. It's going to be very expensive. What is the thing? What do you attribute it to? Because you happened into this thing and it changed your life, right? Is it magic? What is it? Is it your brain works differently than 99.9% .9 of the world? I honestly have no answer to this question. I think it's a function of a few things. I think one was just like, if you really go in, and I've thought a lot about this, especially in the last three months, really, like, why did I get into Rubik's Cubes? Yeah. Because it has, I think, has pushed me a lot in terms of what I'm doing today. It was like, many people don't know this, but I was like very bad at school. Very bad at school, as in I've never passed a class until like I was in eighth grade. At one point, so India instituted this thing where you had to pass kids to next grades, like yeah. basically until eighth grades. Until that point, if the school had the choice, they would put me at the same level, basically. They would not pass me to the next grade. But I think I found something in Rubik's Cubes that made me feel like, okay, I'm not in this traditional group think. It's mostly, I'm not coming with the right word, but it's like you memorize and you like yeah. repeat. It's a different way of learning. Exactly. Like you are smart. You just learn a different way. I Actually, my entire family and everyone else did not think I was for a very <laughs> long time because I was terrible at school. And 
They had, I think my mom was the only one who was like, okay, there's something special with this kid because you've seen him like here and there. So but was there something else before the Rubik's Cube where you could put your finger on? You were 11 years old when, yep. you, when you happened upon that. There must have been some other things where you just had an aptitude for and you could do that most people couldn't do. Not really. I don't really think that's, <laughs> there's really, no. Really? But, well, let me ask you this. In your culture, because, yeah. and you talked about what the, the, the mandate was to move kids along. Yeah. Was it, was there like a stigma being like involved in being the last kid in your class? And, and, oh, and 100%. That sort of stuff? It's not just school, right? Yeah. You have a bunch of things that are associated with school. So yeah. you have extracurricular activities, you get to go play sports and all of these mm. things. And all, I was basically not allowed in any of those things because it was like, you get your school thing first, then we can talk about the other things. And I think Rubik's Cube was the first place where I was like, you can do whatever you want. And I felt like I had control and I started to get very good very quickly. And all of it, I learned off the internet, right? And I was communicating with all these people. Actually, this is a, another really funny story because now he's getting so much attention. I learned Rubik's Cubes on YouTube from Andre Karpati, who's the head of AI at Tesla. He was like Elon's right-hand man. He's one of the co-founders of OpenAI. That's the kind of people huh. you're, I was interacting with when I was 11. Like all of my best friends were like, doctors and engineers and all these things because they were all like in this Rubik's Cube community. And that was a place I found home in, in many ways. And that's where I felt for the first time my weirdness was embraced in some ways. And that's what kind of got me going. But I also knew I was like incredibly competitive. I knew I had one set path. This is what the world record times are. Okay. It was a very measurable thing that continued to get better on a weekly basis. I mean, we were cutting fractions of a second, but I knew these are all the things I needed to do to get to where I wanted to get to. All right. So in October of 2020, Katie Stanton, <laughs> founder and managing partner of Moxie Ventures, <laughs> tweeted something out. And this is honestly embarrassing. This is why Twitter is going away. And, and I know you did great work there at Thank Twitter, but much. it is a different Rest place right now. But back then, RIP <laughs> Twitter, it got 60 likes, now only two reposts. That Those used to be called retweets. But you tweeted this, Did Katie. they really rebrand it to repost? Yeah. Oh, yeah. my yeah. God. You, you are so checked out. Right. Jeez. All right. So it says, this might have been my favorite founder pitch meeting. Excited and honored to partner with Keshav and Dimitri on their journey to make customer care better with digital brain. If they can make solving a Rubik's Cube seem easy, imagine uh, gyro tickets. Okay. So here's the deal. And you had a video of you solving one of these things. How did you meet Keshav? Okay. And, how, and this was like three years ago. This was uh, in the middle of COVID. In the middle of COVID. Yes. You are wearing in the video, we're going to put it in the show notes, you're wearing masks. Those seem like so. 2020. So 2020. Yeah. But talk about how, how did you guys meet? And it's funny because I started out this conversation saying, we're not going to really do the Rubik's Cube thing, but I guess we have to, because it was the thing that kind of hooked you and you led his seed round. That's right. So I was, it's funny because Keshav had actually cold emailed me. I don't know what year it was, maybe 2019 End or just 2019. Yeah, yeah. And we get so many cold inbounds that it just flew right past mm -hmm. me and I didn't look. And a friend of mine who I'd worked with at Google, who also happens to be a Moxie LP and co-investor, he's wonderful. His name is Todd Jackson at first round. And Todd was like, hey, have you heard about this guy, Keshav? You should read his life story. It's really incredible. And I said, OK, I trust Todd. He has great judgment. And I read Keshav's life story growing up in among a family of coconut farmers and had some school tr troubles and got this Rubik's Cube and becomes the national champion of India, and he rides his bike on the Silk Road, and then he comes to America, and he's crashing classes to learn computer science, and he's living in a hacker house, and he's winning these hackathons to pay the rent. I was like, I don't even care what this guy is building. Like, I'm it. This guy is not going to quit. 
but maybe it's too good to be true. The story was just wild. And I was like, okay, I would love to meet him. And every single interaction with Keshav just got like better and better. I'm like, wow, this guy is incredible. His story is incredible. What he's trying to build turns out to be incredible. And it was the middle of COVID and people really were skittish, but we had to meet in person. And I really wanted to lead this round. It's the first round on the first investment that Moxie had ever led. And so I was really like honored and inspired and nervous. And so let's meet. And Keshav and Dima came over to my house in California. And uh, we all had our masks. We're all staying distance and went through it and increasingly excited about it. And then I was a little bit sheepish, but I was like, I really have to see you do this Rubik's Cube thing. And do you mind? And I Wait, remember, did you have one? Like, no, he did. I'm so sorry, but I don't have one Dang. at the moment. Oh, but. Yeah, I, I really should have I brought know, one. That, but that would have been too sticky. This well, is three years later now. Pun unintended was right. what's really funny is that he brought it, but because of COVID, he had Purell all over it. So it was extra <laughs> sticky. And I was like, oh, that's going to really slow him down. And I think you were off by like a second. Like <laughs> instead of six seconds, it was seven seconds. <laughs> so is there something? So Katie saw that right away and you were cold emailing folks and you guys had the, the, the opportunity to meet and she had to like really see like your story is amazing and by the way who plays you in the movie because it's a movie, very good question do you have a short a list i'm i've not thought about any of those okay. things all right let's, let's not get <laughs> okay later the okay. Horse, yeah. so a little bit yeah yeah um but what was it like so talk to me about katie like i've met so many founders who uh, she's obviously been a mentor to and an, obviously an investor and everyone thinks the world of her. It's one of the reasons why when I was looking for pod partners, when we started OK Computer, she was like at the top of my list. I had to pursue you, but I had no special skills. But I, I don't that, have any special skills well, either. I don't, but all right. So I think we make good podcasts <laughs> Maybe together. that's okay, why, yeah. So We're not what was anything. it about that you saw in Katie that saw in you that you were like, I want her to lead my round? I think it was a very special meeting, I have to say. I think I've shared this with you like a few times now, but I, I really do think there was something about like from day one, the sincerity of wanting to go beyond, okay, this is an investment and therefore we want Lumini to be successful. I think there was like this level of sincerity on just wanting to truly beyond everything be like, okay, there's this vision and dream that you have that you've just started. And I want to be such a core integral part to making that real versus I think a lot of other meetings are a little bit more. I've spent a lot of time with investors now. I think it's been like we've all, all around the board, right? And uh, I will say there's truly something special about wanting to invest in you as a human being that will pay such long-term dividends with what's possible in in building companies. And I think especially at that stage when like I was a 20-year-old immigrant with at that point no work visa who's just like living out of this hacker house with basically no real family or community and wanting to change that to give that support system because you I think Katie, I think you saw okay if we build that maybe foundation then maybe there's a shot at something like truly revolutionary and truly exceptional. And I think that I think most people forget and don't do. And I feel like it's a, not a, I don't know, it's a secret that it comes naturally to you that I think is like, I'm not really seen in anybody else till today. And so we work with a lot of people now and I will tell you it's, it's special and unique and rare. It's pretty cool. We're sitting here in Boulder, Colorado. Katie is headquartered here. I know you spend a lot of time on the East coast, on the West coast here, and you're here. You're obviously focused or, or you're uh, headquartered on San Francisco. Think about that. You're the kingpin here. You put this all together here. So <laughs> I, I'm a huge fan. I think what they're doing is so unique relative to the stuff that traditionally has gone in Silicon Valley, Sand Hill Road. But talk to me a little bit about like, that. so you're living in a hacker house. It's 2019. You do not have the traditional, and I've seen it. You, you talk about this. You weren't Stanford. You weren't ex-Google. You weren't all these sorts of things. How did you know at that moment, you taught yourself coding, it sounds mm -hmm. like, in high school. 
How did you know at that moment that you wanted to be a founder, you wanted to do something truly revolutionary, as you just said, or get a great paying job at a Google or a mm -hmm. Facebook or something like that, which I'm sure you could have done at that point. And that would have been a massive success to compared to where you were just two years earlier. Yeah, I think it's interesting because like in the end of the day, you say that very lightly, like, oh, there's an opportunity you could have get, got this yeah. high paying job. I actually don't think any of those things were true. If you really deconstruct that in some ways, right? You were to think, okay, there's this 19 year old kid who shows up and I go to one of these companies. The first question they're gonna ask is like, how are you even here? What is your work authorization? Yes, you have a dream. Cool. Let's move you back to India. Let's figure this out. That's probably a 12 month, 18 month cycle. And in my head, like one month is a long time. And in many ways, the sort of the most incredible kind of thing I fell into was this hackathon community where there were all these incredible people building phenomenal tooling over like weekends that in many cases became very large companies. And I lived in this hacker house. What's funny is like Katie's now invested in maybe two other people who've come out of that same hacker house. I remember going over one day to see you yeah. and I was like, I'm just going to start handing out term sheets because yeah. everyone here is pretty remarkable. I thought you were saying, I'm going to start cleaning a little bit. I was like, you're motherly. So that's the way I would be. I did want to feed everyone. Yes, I right? Like sure. Did they look emaciated <laughs> and they're just coding all day? And that house is maybe you can house like nine to 10 people yeah. at a time. And I think when I was there, it was like eight out of the 10 people were all immigrants. I think today, combined total, that company, that house has raised over maybe $400 million. Wow. Um, what what right? was the name? What do you have the name? called Incepto. But it's a very special place. And I think there was one company that just had raised a Series B or something like that. And there's similar stories. I mean, there were Sanford kids, but also immigrants who had this like dream. And I'd watch social network. like And like it was like all of these things started to come together because you were like running into people like Zuck uh, in the streets of Palo Alto. And I was like, wait a second. Like all these dreams that you were like thinking about actually could be like possible today. And you don't actually need to do any of the things that like society requires you to do to get there. So talk to us. All right. So, so you go from this hacker house to YC. That's right. And then you meet in YC, you meet your current partner, Dimitri, or you met in the hacker house. Yeah. So we actually met at a hackathon. Okay. We worked together for six or seven months okay. before we decided to start Lumini. And then we lived in the hacker house together. We actually shared a room together. We shared a, a bed together. It was like, this is like <laughs> peak where we're trying to be frugal. It was really just 24 seven where... We're whiteboarding, we're figuring out what to do. And really the first thing that happened was one of these companies in the house, like they'd started to really rapidly grow through the pandemic. And the founder of that company was like, hey, Keshav, I know you guys are thinking about starting a company. The real problems actually lie within my operations and CX org. You should come sit in and see what it's like. And that's how it all started. And we built the first version of Lumini for that company in that org, really. So this is interesting. And Katie, I would love to get your take on this. But this was, Keisha, you, you, you tweeted this in June of 2022. People say a lot of things about San Francisco, but the number of founders who are just silently building and not being very loud on Twitter is very high. Currently doing a post-Series A program uh, and close to 80% of the startups in the cohort are San Francisco Bay companies, which I think is really fascinating. It was very different than the narrative a little bit. And you spent a lot of time, I know during the pandemic in San Francisco, as, especially as you're deploying capital for Moxie. What does that mean to you? Because it really seems, that seems like it, at odds, that comment with what the narrative was. That's what you were tweeting about. And I'm just curious, like how have you seen this sort of play out? Because all we heard about was this mass exodus from the Bay Area to Austin, to Boulder, to Miami. I think New York has been a huge beneficiary also here but it seems like there's a lot of great stuff. And our friend Deirdre Bosa at CNBC, who does Tech Jack, who you got to meet this, you got to meet this guy. Totally. Um, she did a report, actually was on the NBC Nightly News. So they picked it up from CNBC talking about the AI frenzy. And all of a sudden we've seen commercial real estate bottom in San Francisco because now think about the network effects that exist in these sorts of places. I don't think that can be undone. And in some ways, I think that if 
too much talent is moving to these disparate sort of places, we won't have amazing companies like Illumini and stuff like that become massive companies. I don't know. Does that make sense to you a little bit? I'm just curious. Do you agree with that sentiment? I do. And I think that both things can be true. I think that, yes, great talent can spread to lots of places. Mm -hmm. And the Bay Area is still a phenomenal place to build. You're right. The network effects are real. They cannot be undone. There's something really special about the burstiness, right? The burstiness of living in a hacker house, the burstiness of being in Palo Alto at a cafe and running into a couple people and exchanging like recent observations or, hey, I'm trying to hire somebody like, oh my God, I just had coffee with someone. Mm -hmm. So that network is so special and so unique. And I'll say still today, Moxie started about four years ago. And today the best deal flow that we continue to see, especially in software and AI, Mm -hmm. is all Bay Area. We have great founders in New York, great ones in LA, a few really good founders in Miami, and those things are all Mm -hmm. developing. That's great, but the Bay Area is special. Hey, listeners, it's Dan here. I want to tell you about a company that I'm really excited about. It's called Current. It's a fintech company that's completely disrupting traditional banking. I'm a new Current customer. It's already helping me and my entire family manage our finances, all from one easy-to-use app. So try Current for yourself and get the app by going to current.com slash OK. That's current.com slash OK. Current is a financial technology company, not a bank. Banking services provided by Choice Financial Group, member FDIC, and Cross River Bank, member FDIC. Pretty fascinating how you came up with the idea for Lumen AI. Mm-hmm. You basically had one of your housemates say, hey, listen, we're having problems here. Okay, mm-hmm. so Digital Brain was the name of the company mm-hmm. to begin with. What, like, Just give our listener a sense of like what the big problem was, not just this one situation that you were trying. And, and how quickly did you realize, oh, we can create something and deploy it across lots of different verticals because there is some huge bottlenecks as it relates to the customer service process. Yeah, so I'm, I'm actually like, this is going to be a very wild set of analogies, but I think it'll all add up in the end. And maybe even Katie hasn't really heard some of these things, especially as we're like now- So we're workshopping some stuff. Yeah, here, they're right? we're really, you know, expanding across our customer base. And this is kind of the stories that we're sharing with them. And it's really resonating because we're looking at them fundamentally. And if you take, go back to my Rubik's Cube days, at one point, the way you look at a Rubik's Cube solver, right, there, there's two pieces to a solution. One is just the steps that it takes to go from a scrambled Rubik's Cube to a solved Rubik's Cube. And then how fast can you execute those steps to get to a solved Rubik's Cube? What was interesting is besides the world record, I was also at some point the world's fastest turner of the pieces. And so what that means is that the number of phases that you can turn per second At one point, at I think 2015, 16, 17, 18, I was like the fastest in the world in terms of the number of turns you can do on a a per second basis. But what was interesting was the amount of steps it took for me to solve the review was a lot higher than the average world-class speed cuber, meaning they would take maybe 45, 50, 55 steps to solve a Rubik's Cube, but I would take 70, 75, 80 steps, then I would do it at 16, 17, 18 moves per second. And so I was able to make up the time, but at the end of the day, I was incredibly inefficient. What was funny was when you actually go look at an operations or a customer service professional's job today, that's what it really looks like, is like they're jumping between six, seven, eight different systems, basically clicking the same sets of buttons over and over again and trying to perform the same actions for a particular problem. What does that really look like? You order from DoorDash, right? And you're asking them, hey, I want a refund. If you want to process a refund on DoorDash, right, the agent on processing that refund, they're copying the email of the person who's contacting them, going into their internal order management system, searching for their order, 
finding the specific items, clicking cancel there, calculating how much needs to be refunded, going into a payment processor, searching for the payment, finding the account, doing the refund, then going into their sort of delivery network, letting the person who delivered know the necessary details that they need to do, and then contacting the restaurant partner and saying, hey, this is, this is the feedback that Katie gave, and then come back and let the customer know, hey, we've processed your refund. That step or that process basically is being done on a daily basis, like tens of thousands of times, every time someone requests a refund. If you take the healthcare version of that, if someone asks to process a claim, right, they are now initially copying the claim ID that a patient uh, sort of uh, connected with. They're going into a payment, like a payer portal, which is where kind of all this detail and all the data lies. They have to go and search all of this information and find the you know claim sort of details. And then depending on what the hospital charged previously, they'd have to actually adjust the claim, come back and actually process that entire end-to-end claim flow. And the other day, that's the same thing over and over again, right? And so what this whole concept has now become is this world, what we've sort of really leaned into is this idea of digital labor. We've kind of moved from like physical labor where we're moving objects from one place to another into digital labor where we're just moving data from one system to another and then figuring out what that data response is and then taking that data again and putting it in another system and doing that work over and over again. And that's kind of where we saw and we're like, wait a second, like this feels a lot like the Ruby's Cube world where you're doing all this inefficient work to process the same types of things. And so that's kind of where Illumini came in, where we said simply what we can do is let's watch what you do once, let's record what you're doing once, and then we're able to build in this logic so that we're able to take care of all the edge cases and the nuances. And let's create like instant workflows that'll actually replicate what they're doing so they can continue talking to the customer if that's the that's their focus or no longer actually need to even do this work anymore so that they can focus on what their primary job is, which is in the end of the day, like the more time you have with your customer, the better. What sort of productivity metrics like were you seeing early on and how they have they advanced? Because again, a lot of the concepts you're talking about seem pre-pandemic-y sort of stuff. Remember, everyone was worried about automation, the robots were going to take the jobs and this and whatever. And we literally had real conversations about universal basic income because ultimately all these jobs are going to be automated away. And then we had the pandemic and different things happened. And now we have unemployment at 70-year lows. I'm I'm sure you have plenty to say about the immigration issues mm-hmm. that is causing some of these dynamics here. And then if you think of reshoring and deglobalization, like lots of things as it relates to employment here, specifically in the U.S., what we're trying to do as a matter of just, let's call it national security as it relates to supply chains and everything like that. But then when you think about all of these knowledge jobs or, or mm-hmm. these jobs that we need to fill, and if we are successful with some of this fiscal policy, we're going to have some real issues. So I'm just curious, and I know that there's a lot of things wrapped up in that, but like how does what you're doing, does it fly in the face? Because now we're all we're hearing about AI is going to take all the jobs, sure. right? And I know they're related here. Talk to us a little bit about that and, and how you're thinking about that. Because if you are successful, how much are you drawing down the use of like kind of humans to do a lot of these processes? And, and then how does it all factor in? If you really look at like the history of automation in general, right, all the way from like the industrial revolution yeah. to all of these things, in the end of the day, like we as humans are required to do the things that require high human judgment, cognition. You go actually talk to operations or customer service professionals who are asking them, what is your most of your job sort of contained of? It's basically this type of work where 60, 70% of their time they're spending like doing this clicking or doing this mm-hmm. sort of the type of repetitive work that they don't want to do anyway. Mm-hmm. They want to actually do what they're good at, which is like a customer comes in or a patient comes in even, you're like, you have to give them empathy, right? You have to understand where they're coming from. You have to understand what is their context. You don't want to be spending your time doing all this back office work associated with every part of that end-to-end process of resolving a patient's issue or a customer's issue, right? And when we're talking about that type of thing, then you're saying, okay, like if we eliminate all of that, what does that give more of? It actually gives more of the, the high value work that us as humans should be doing 
And that's basically what Lumina is helping function across these organizations. I'll give you an example. We work with a we're starting to work with this a very large public healthcare company. And I think they have their entire back office, basically. It's just people doing this type of like fulfillment tasks. It's, I want to change my primary care provider. I want to like get a new ID card. I want to figure out if this insurance, I'm eligible for it. I want to figure out like, uh, where's my claim play mat, right? And they have this like massive outsourced uh, back office org, right? That's doing all of this work that now they're moving completely entirely onto Luma. And what's happening is all of these people are now moving into actual patient care, which is what they really wanted to do. And if you really look at the kind of trajectory of each of these people, they all start in these organizations primarily because they want to work their way into actually talking to the customer, or work their way into much more exciting, much more cognitive work that in the end of the day, that most people end up never getting the chance to do. Are you guys creating bespoke programs for different organizations? So when you're talking about like the example you gave in the healthcare system, sure. these are massive companies. These are some of the biggest companies in America processing some of the, the most queries. And if you talk to anybody who has spent time in, in like the healthcare space and you're trying to do claims, it's like hell. It really is. Mm -hmm. And a lot of it has to do with the fact, I think, a lot of the things that you're trying to do. I'm just curious, how do you do that? Or do you do it for a specific industry or and you can cater it towards an individual like organization? So this is the advantage of kind of the technology we've built, mm -hmm. right? So fundamentally what we're able to do now is take a re recording of a video, mm -hmm. right? You're literally showing a process in a video. Mm -hmm. You're feeding it a document, right? Of the entire, what we call an SOP, a standard operating procedure document of what you are doing in that process. The combination of those two things basically lends itself to the creation of an automation using Luminize AI systems. So what's actually happening is you're feeding in a recording of the entire end-to-end -end process, and then you're actually typing in saying, hey, I'm doing this on this page, I'm doing this on this page, I'm doing this on this page. And then now what Luminize systems are able to do is actually capture all of those sort of clicks and keystrokes in the context of what's being fed, and then generate that automation. Right. And primarily, most of our customer base falls into our fastest growing segment is healthcare. Mm -hmm. um, but we have a lot of customers in retail and e-commerce. And then we've started to actually dip our toe into financial services. So that's the area of um, focus. Um, what's interesting is the bespokeness that you're talking about is we've built the building blocks of being able to stitch together these workflows that are super bespoke to each organization without actually needing to do any customization on it. Right? Yeah. Because all we're doing is like saying, hey, we have all these building blocks. Show us a video. The system will automatically build these blocks for you to create that end-to-end -end process. And so what, what used to be like a software engineering project of, hey, let's pull in engineering teams, uh, let's devote six months of engineering work to create this automation is now instantaneous. So uh, assuming your customers are running uh, Lumini side by side for a bit, what, what are some of the key metrics for success that they identify with and they want to just go all in on? What we consider four pillars that we measure from just a templatized format of how we measure success when you go into each customer. The first one is just, right in your face, productivity, right? We're saying pre-Lumini, this is how much time and this is the amount of work that your people are doing on a day-to-day -day basis, right? This is measured in the customer service land as average handle time. That's the term that's used. But if you look at just any kind of operational workflow, you're just looking at here's how much time that's being spent purely from an hour standpoint pre-Lumini. We're measuring what is the actual increase in productivity post-Lumini. So we're looking at pre-average handle time, pre-Lumini, average handle time, we're looking post limit average channel time for those type of issues that we're solving for. That's one. The second, which is a little more in-depth, which we are realizing actually is causing phenomenal waves in the contracts closing a lot faster that we didn't really recognize until we went deeper was error rates and consistency. So for example, I'll give you an example in healthcare and maybe even an example in financial services is one of the customers we work with used to have like a 11% denial rate on all of their claims. Because when they submit these claims, they would do it in the wrong way, meaning yeah. they would write the PCP wrong or they would miss an initial. 
And I will tell you, insurance companies are really good at like just saying, oh, I don't know what you're talking about. Denied. They have a reason to do that. And so now with that company, we've reduced that error rate down to zero because it's all being done by software. People are not going to make, software's not going to make mistakes when it's just copy pasting all of this work and filling out a form and submitting it to the company. That company has increased revenue by that amount of mistakes that they used to do. On the financial services side, we're processing disputes across a bunch of different uh, fintech companies today. And and what's interesting about disputes is that it is such a lengthy process to fight back a dispute. You have to gather all this documentation. You have to basically go and show eight months of conversational history with this specific customer. You have to look at where they based when they perform these transactions, things like that. A lot of companies, they're losing hundreds of thousands, if not millions of dollars because they just want to even handle these disputes because the amount of time that they spend actually going ahead and processing these disputes is just way higher on the people cost side than if they were to actually get back all of that money. But now what they've done is they've said, okay, let's define this process once and let's make Lumini fight all the disputes for us. With this one very high growth financial services company, it's a Series D company, any transaction under $75, they were not even disputing. That was over $450,000 on a yearly basis that they were not even fighting. That now is going to zero. We're recouped all of them. I was over 80%. We've won eight, over 80% of their kind of dispute cases against you said guys pay for yourself. Exactly. Yeah. It's beyond the hours that we're saving. It's all these errors and mistakes that people used to do that we're now recouping. The third is like a little bit more what we look at. We do the surveys around our customers actually happy, meaning the employee engagement side. When you actually talk to a mother of five working out of somewhere in middle America as a, a claim specialist or whatever. When you go actually ask her like, hey, how does Lumini affect you now? She's saying, hey, I, my whole life, I wanted to just talk to patients and solve their issues. And now if Lumini is taking care of all this back office stuff, like I'm just happier at my job. So like, it sounds like healthcare and financial services are probably the fastest growing That's probably the biggest Lumini at right the moment. Now. That's right. And I think those the com combination of all of those is where we see the mo most you, opportunity. You mentioned a Series D company in the financial services, but mm -hmm. um, how are you doing with like incumbents, big established sort of companies? And, and again, they're probably harder. And again, like when you think about your origin story and how you guys came about, you were trying to help young, nimble sort of companies sure. get to scale. Are you having some success with larger established, let's call it financial services or healthcare? Yeah, yeah. So we're working with, like, for example, a public bank that's now serving, I don't know the exact number, but millions and millions yeah. of consumers on a daily basis, right? And we're helping basically mitigate and manage all of their fraud, their trust and safety, and back office sort of bank use cases. And so these are things that like, people are like just doing like they have thousands of people kind of processing whether it's disputes or whether it's figuring out suspicious activity reports or whether it's like just QA on the conversations between their consumer and, and the banks, right? And ensuring that all of that is being mitigated where they're spending many millions of dollars basically to process all of this stuff. And at the end of the day, like actually losing the, the actual customer experience because they're not able to handle them in the way that customers in the end of the day want, right? Because if you're on the phone for two hours to get this like very small thing resolved. Because in the end of the day, that's, I'm not sure if that's the experience you've had recently, but I'll tell you mm -hmm. just from the customers we talked to, that's their average time and they're losing customers left and right because of that. And then it also impacts the end user where you're, you're losing trust in that system. And restoring that is a big part of, of the Lumini story. So Keshav, you have accomplished so much already in your early career. What's next for Lumini? What are the big rocks that you see for the company over the next couple of years? Yeah, so I think like fundamentally, if you actually look at an organization, if you have this 30,000 foot view on actually what's happening on a day-to-day -day basis, literally on a per byte basis on this is the data that's passed from one system to another system and what work that's being done by people across the org, what you learn is that a lot of this work is actually mundane and very repetitive and very manual. 
And so what Lumina is actually working on right now, and we're now betaing with some of our earlier customers, is actually something, this world is called process mining. But what we're actually doing is, if you were to think about it very simply, the end goal or the vision or sort of the point at which you experience it as Lumina as a product, imagine if every employee within a company has installed Lumina. It's just watching what you're doing all locally, ensuring all the privacy stuff is taken care of. It's just watching what you're doing on a day-to-day basis and then automatically identifying where there's areas of this repetitive mundane work that you're doing, right? And then it's automatically then making a list of, okay, here's all these pieces of the puzzle that we as humans should not be doing. And then you're basically offloading it this to this AI agent workforce, right? And you'd imagine, you'd be surprised, that's probably 40, 50% of a company's bloat is this type of work. And if you're then offloading that to actually the cloud, you're talking about then highly efficient organizations that's actually being doing work that us as humans should be doing and basically, that, that separate workforce is doing its own thing and basically creating these mini agents that's doing all this repetitive small things that might even look like one or two minute things. But when you add them over the year, you're like, wait, I, did I just spend 15 days of my entire life like clicking this one button like on a daily basis? And that's basically what like computers should do, right? That's what software is built for. And that's where we're going. You're a Series A early stage company in the Bay Area. In person, hybrid, or remote? We're going fully in person because of some sort of family situations. We've grandfathered in some people into kind of wherever they are, but they're also visiting the office on a monthly or even bi-monthly basis. But outside of that, we're only hiring in person and we're hiring our go-to-market, our sort of non-technical teams based in San Francisco. And actually a lot of our AI and deep technical talent is based out of London. So wait, but I thought the kids today, they all want to just be at home and doing things from wherever they want. And you're a 24-year-old co-founder of a company that you sound like you've been around for a long time. Are you at odds? Is that policy at odds with, let's just say, some similar sized companies in the Bay Area? When you're hiring, are yeah. you getting pushback of this policy is actually a good one? Yeah, I think the simplest way is like we actually say that in the when they apply. Yeah. And if they like, yeah. we just weed out people who are not the right fit for the company because I really do think there's something so special about getting to be in the same room. And if you think about it, Lumini was actually very much an in-person company throughout the pandemic because we only had five people, all of us lived together in the same house. Yeah. <laughs> and so yes, we were remote in the sense that we had one or two engineers who were outside, but the real, like, the real core work actually happened all in person. And now as we've grown a lot and we fell a little bit for eight months of, we hired a few people in SoCal and we hired a few people in New York. Outside of that, I think now moving forward, the office is getting busier and busier. And it's interesting, we have a three days in-person mandate, but most days everybody shows up. I'm going to ask you again, who plays you in the movie? Not even a little time to think about it. Many more things to do. Okay, fair enough. Katie, I'm really glad you brought Keshav in to OK Computer. Uh, Fascinating conversation. I hope you'll come back. And for me, being here in Boulder, I asked Katie one question. I said, hey, do you want a podcast? He goes, yes, but I have one of the most genius founders I know who happens to be in town. I'd love to bring him on the pod. So I'm glad you did. Thanks so much, Katie. Thank you. Grateful for you both. Thank you for having us. Thanks. If you like what you heard, make sure to hit follow and leave us a review. It helps other people find the show. We also want to hear from you. Email us at contact at riskreversal.com.